morning. Uh, I think this is my first time in a room with this many people since October. And the last time it was, it was here, other than the grocery store. But I wasn't talking at this many people at the grocery store. Um, we've been part of the Zoom version of Monsieur Day Church. Uh, we also meet on Sunday mornings, same time, but we're all in little squares somewhere behind that screen. Hi, my people. Uh, I've been part of that tribe uh, since this all started. This morning, we're going to be going into the next section of our Acts um, journey. Uh, we're in Acts 16. I'm actually not going to read the whole passage because it's a lot of verses, and I'd rather tell the story. Um, because in reading it through, this is a story that I grew up with and um, had heard it ad infinitum. And oftentimes, I don't know if you, you all grew up in church or not, but if you have and you hear a story over and over and over, it tends to lose its, like, kind of lose its its power. Like, you use you lose what's at, what it's actually saying. So um, this story starts in a town called Philippi. Um, it is, uh, for Ken Jones, it's in the Middle East somewhere, not very close to the uh, coast. Um, I, I had some notes in here as to where it was, and it wasn't exactly accurate. Um, it was established uh, about, I want to say around 400 B.C., and in, the, in about 90 years prior to this story, um, the Romans took it over, and they Romanized it. And when, a, a, when Rome would Romanize a place, uh, they would try to take as much of the local culture in, out and put as much of their culture in. So if you were there uh, when this book was, or when this story happened, it would feel kind of like a mini Rome. Uh, Roman custom, Roman law, uh, Roman dress. Um, the Greeks had their whole pantheon of gods. The Romans came in and basically gave them Roman names, uh, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, but the, the setting is very much a Roman place. Now, other stories that we heard about Paul and Peter getting, moving the gospel around um, the area had them going into a place uh, following Jews. So they would go to the synagogue. They had some common language with the people in the synagogue, and that's where they would get their start and um, ha had that as a common language. This isn't the case here. It says they get to the city, and this is starting in verse 16, and if you want to follow along, great, but I'm going to probably not stick right to the script. Um, as they get to the city, it's a massive walled city. Instead of going in and finding one of the temples or one of the places that they could maybe find a common language, they went outside. It says they went outside to a river, to a quiet place to pray. Um, and at this river, there were a number of women, and most likely based on archaeological findings, there, these women were were worshiping Artemis, who was a pretty nice goddess. She was in charge of wild animals, vegetation, hunting, among other things. Um, but here's where they meet this woman, Lydia. And if you want to know more about Lydia, tune into Danny's sermon from last week. He speaks quite a bit about, about her. Um, but a couple of things for today's story. She was wealthy. She was well-respected. She had influence. And through her conversations with Paul and Silas about gods and about about God, they were able to introduce to her this man Jesus and the story of God. 
she in turn brings them into her household. Um, so that offers them some level of protection and a foothold or a jumping off point or like a, a beachhead with which to establish this church in Philippi. They've met one person, one family they can connect with to begin their, their ministry. So the second part of this is we know they were in that town for a while and we don't know what a while is, was it? I think it's more than a week. My guess is it's probably in the multiple weeks, maybe a few months. Um, and in verse 16, we, we, we see the early sprouts of a church popping up out of the ground. They're meeting out by the river. They have their prayer meetings out there. They go back to the house. It doesn't seem like they've um, encountered too many other people. And it also seems from earlier passages, if you read back the previous couple uh, chapters, that the Spirit of God has been kind of operating like GPS for them. Um, don't go here go here. Talk to this person, don't talk to this person. And it's, it seems very specific, like eerily specific, to where they get to Philippi, they meet Lydia, and they start having prayer meetings, and then not a whole lot else happens. Until one of the days, they're, they're, it sounds like they're kind of keeping a low profile. Um, I think it's safe to say that they don't have the sandwich boards on them that say, like, prepare to meet thy God and two roads and two destinies. They're not passing out pamphlets. Um, but they know they've been guided to this place supernaturally, and now they were waiting for their next move. So one of the times as they're heading down through the city, probably again from one of the wealthier neighborhoods, um, just quietly kind of minding their own business, it's Luke and Paul and Silas and maybe a few others, they hear an almost inhuman, high-pitched scream coming from one of the alleyways as they walk by. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Oh my gosh, they freak out. The, the entire crowd stops. Everyone stops and turns and like, who is this woman? Now, we, we know because we can read the text that the woman was possessed. We know that she was uh, owned, not just possessed uh, demonically, but she was, she was owned, like she was pimped out by some handlers that they, she could tell fortunes through her demon possession, and they would, um, they would charge people to have her services, and they owned her. But I want you to think about that scene. You're walking down, you're trying to be like, hey, we're not trying to make any disturbances, in this voice. And she didn't stop. It says she was continual, and it says that she didn't stop for many days. So we don't know if she followed them all the way down to the river. We don't know um, if, like, after this first encounter and the second encounter and the third, now it's become commonplace. All the people that know, oh, here, here's, here comes, uh, here comes the, the Jesus people uh, because we can hear the lady coming three blocks away. But as, as it's growing... I was thinking, like, what do they say in the morning before they leave Lydia's house? Is it, you know, maybe we should split up today. Maybe we should, maybe if we leave early, maybe we don't have to deal with her. Um, and then they get to the river that she screeched at them the whole way down to the river. They get down to the river and maybe their prayers like, God, please make this woman stop. Please cast her tongue far away from her body or give us a sign. Maybe, maybe we're in the wrong spot. Send us somewhere else. And again, there's no... There's no, uh, there's no visibility. There's nothing in the text that says, and God said, 
or in the spirit said. So Paul, I want you to picture Apostle Paul. He's had some crazy things happen to him in his life. And he and Silas and Luke are walking down the road again. And this lady starts in and maybe Paul was like, you know, I need to hear from God. I need to hear from God. I really want to know what's going on. And this lady won't shut up. And she starts in and he just turns around straight up in her face and says, listen. And it says, he doesn't say it to her. He says it to the, to the spirit in her, to the spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And it says at that moment, the spirit left her. That's the end of us hearing about that woman in the, in the story. We don't know if she followed them through the rest of the city. We don't know if um, she became a, a convert. I think it's assumed that she becomes a convert and follows them, but it doesn't say. We're not told, but what this does do, this little incident from God's silence, this blows their cover wide open. So Paul and Silas... Luke, Luke, I think, is still with him at this point. Um, they, they head down to the river, maybe with the woman. Now, this is the tipping point for the story. This is one of two major tipping points. Um, and a, as they're maybe coming back from the river, the river's outside. If you look at on, on a map, the river's outside these huge walled cities, the, these, the walls of the city. And as they come in and maybe turn up, heading towards the wealthy section of town to Lydia's, there's this mob coming at them. And the, the scene kind of behind the scene that I picture is the guys who are controlling this woman somehow hear that uh, she's no longer in, in their service. Uh, maybe like the way I picture it is there's like a, a front office that maybe does like legit business and then the back office is like where all the bad stuff happens. And one of their legit customers comes in and like, hey, did you hear what happened down the road? You, you, you guys control that, that crazy fortune teller lady, right? Like, yeah, yeah, we do. Well, um, yeah, the, do you know the Jewish guys that are here? Yeah. Uh, well, they, they just lit her up. They just flipped out on her. And they said something about come out and Jesus. And, and like, that, you know the glazed look that she gives everyone? She kind of just doesn't look at anyone. Yeah, well, that was gone. They, she actually looked around like she recognized people. And she just went off with them and, and their handlers are like, you're kidding me. That's our cash cow. Like, we're going to make a call. We got to call someone. So they call the magistrates. They call the local authority and they don't uh, say to the local authority, you know, we think these men, uh, they owe us some money because they took our cash cow off the, uh, off the books or, you know, there's, um, we're really concerned that they might be leading her astray. They, charged them with um, undercutting or undermining Roman custom or Roman law, which is a big deal if you're in a Roman, uh, a Roman um, colony or Roman, Roman state. So this has to be dealt with now by the authority. So Paul and Silas, I can see them um, coming around that corner. They see this mob and Paul goes, oh, my temper. I can't, I, Maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. And Silas maybe looks at him like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have said anything. Um, and it's interesting. It's a, Luke, Luke is the narrator through the whole story. And then here it says Luke is gone. It's just Paul and Silas. So Luke was like, oh, look at the mob. I'm out the side door. So they're stripped down. And in the, in they're brought into the city center, stripped down. And it says they're beaten severely. 
and they're thrown in stocks in prison. Now, we wouldn't be shocked, I don't think, to read that Paul and Silas were sitting in their stocks going through their list of why questions. Like, wh why did this happen? What, what, did, what sign did we miss? Or uh, what is God doing? What's allowing this? Why has he been so silent? Ever since we got here, we met Lydia. Nothing's happened until we meet this crazy woman, and, and she's really kind of set things on a, a not-so-great path. We also wouldn't be shocked to read that Silas started to berate Paul for losing his temper on the woman and getting them thrown into this situation. They're sitting in stocks in prison. And Silas like, well, you and your big mouth, here we are again in prison, beaten, all bloodied up. If you just kept your mouth shut and practiced patience and peace and long-suffering, maybe we wouldn't be here right now. And we probably wouldn't be shocked if they were sitting in the stocks. If you think back to a few passages ago when Peter and Paul had a big fight and maybe in the back of Paul's mind he's thinking you know maybe it's something about that conversation that God has decided you know you're not you're you're not the a-team anymore uh my I'm gonna go with Peter and all of that could be going through their mind but we are shocked and we're shocked to read that around midnight if you're in the vicinity of that prison which was probably built into the walls you would have heard Paul and Silas praying and singing, yes, through their bloody, swollen lips. They can't see a thing. They're singing as best they could, sitting in their stocks, all uh, crunched over. It's terrible singing form, but they're singing. And they're singing so much, though, that the prisoners, and most likely the jailer, could hear them. And that's a great story. What great faith. That's the end of the story. No, it's not the end of the story. This is where it gets m more interesting. Um, and just as an aside, I was thinking about that. This is how I fight my battles song. And I was thinking if they're sitting there singing, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And the other prisoners are like, would those just shut up? But what is wrong with them? They just got the, the living snot kicked out of them. And they're singing about Jesus. And they're surrounded. Of course, they're surrounded. They're in stocks. And, and when it can't get worse... There's an earthquake. Now, if you've read the story a lot, like the earthquake's like, oh, and then there's the earthquake and everything gets better. There's an earthquake. Imagine right now the walls of this place start to shake and the floor starts to open up. But it's dark. It's absolutely pitch dark. There's no lights down in the dungeon. So they can feel, thankfully, it didn't like wrench their legs, but they can feel the stocks open up. And they can, maybe they catch wind coming in from outside as the doors kind of the door frames bend and the doors swing open and they're free. The prisoners can't see each other, but you probably could hear a, a murmur going through that prison with all these prisoners who've done all sorts of things. Being like, uh, what do we do now? I, I also have to think that both Paul and Silas were thinking back to Peter's miraculous uh, entrance or escape from prison where Everyone was praying for their escape and the angel or for Peter's escape and the angel comes in and leads him out. Maybe this was their miracle. Mate, was this God finally recognizing them for their work? They could go free. That's amazing. But no, that, that's not what happened. Somehow, Paul and Silas and the other prisoners could see where the jailer was. So my guess is there was a, a room or a balcony that they could see that was lit and they were down in the dark, 
and they see this jailer come whipping out of what used to be his door. It's probably hanging sideways off the hinges and they, he comes whipping out and he has uh, a short sword in his hand. He was probably a retired centurion or a retired soldier. And he knew that if any one of those prisoners walked, he would be publicly executed. And so he was about to do himself in. He has a sword out and I don't know how he's gonna do it. It doesn't really say. Um, and, and Paul looks up and sees him and I can imagine, can imagine other prisoners looking up and seeing him and they're like, oh, come on, do it, buddy. You've beaten us, you've tortured us. This would be the best thing that ever happened. And as all of that tension is on that, that jailer, as he's about to um, do himself in, Paul yells, stop, stop. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. I can imagine some of the other prisoners around him thinking about the injustice and the amount of abuse that they had to put up with under this guy's authority. And now these, these crazy people who are singing and praising God and praying audibly through the night are telling him to stop. What is going on in this scene? And it says the jailer rushes down the cell, down to their cell with a light, and he guides Paul and Silas out into the fresh air. And he gets down there in front of them so he can see them. Maybe he's got the light in between them. And he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, we're going to pause here. And I know this is like seconds before the crescendo of the story. But I want to look at what's actually happening here in Paul and Silas. So we mentioned earlier that Paul and Silas and Luke, they have been guided in and out of certain cities and around like GPS style in the weeks, months, and years prior. There was a constant leading by the Spirit. When they get there, they meet Lydia and her family. Not much drama. This is a godly woman who accepts their messages, message, gives them kind of a comfortable place to say, stay. But no major spiritual... Um, like there's no rainbows and unicorns. There's no like, aha, the spiritual uh, awakening. And they, they kind of do their thing. And then they run into the woman who really throws things into a, into a, a, a bit of a, throws them into a bit of a pickle. But they don't convert the magistrate. They don't, they don't preach to the, um, the spiritual elite or the political elite. They don't go to the women's owners and talk to them about how they could be free in the same, like they, they, don't, they don't do anything with the women's owners. They're beaten and they're thrown in prison. But the reaction in prison is incredibly telling. And it was, um, I would say convicting to me, and I wanna be careful with that word because conviction and guilt, I don't think are the same. And sometimes when we hear convicting, we hear guilt, but it was very, let's use the word arresting it's almost as if the fact that they were in prison was proof to them that they were getting it right and not the opposite. It acted to them as a signpost to their faith. Not their, their reaction showed that they saw this as, as like, in, I think it's in biblical terms in Ebenezer, if anyone hikes, it's a cairn. It's like, here is a signpost that they're getting it right. They were so rooted in their understanding and their belief that God was moving and that even though they didn't see it, even if they died in prison that night, which was probably fairly likely based on the beating they had, they were good. They were exactly where God wanted them to be. 
they had just set a demon-possessed woman free. They had started kind of the small snowball of an early church rolling down the hill in this foreign, unchurched territory. If they get beaten and die, so be it. They practice knowing the presence of God through their days in and out. I go back to this, the, the thing that jumped out of this passage was not the earthquake. It was not the demon-possessed woman. It was that they were constantly going down to this river to pray. It was constant. The earthquake, I can imagine, is almost being comic relief. Like they'd been praying and asking God, hey, show us the way. When all hope seems lost, please, God, give us a sign. It's like all hope is lost. There is no, nothing left. Like they're in prison, they're beaten, they're half dead. All hope is lost. And then they have an earthquake. What more hope can be lost? But that doesn't, it, doesn't change their, it doesn't change their faith. And this is the context by which when that uh, jailer comes down and says, what must I do to be saved? They can look at him through their black eyes, through puffy lips, and say with absolute conviction, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Through beatings, jail, a crazy woman, earthquakes, soon to be shipwrecks. Ultimately, it's, it will end in their torture and death. Through everything, this statement, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So just as this story, so, and it says, like just in, as, as, it, it, as an aside, it says the jailer takes them home cleans up their wounds, binds them up, feeds them, introduces them to his family, and they kind of tell the whole story of God. So you think, wow, that's a crazy story. Well, it gets weirder. Um, At the end of the story, Paul and Silas are all cleaned up and patched back together, and um, they're going to head back to Lydia's house. And before the jailer, as the jailer says, hey, well, well, you guys are free to go, Paul stops and goes, well, hang on a second. We're citizens of Rome. Now, what would have happened then, the jailer would have had a series of alarm bells go off because as citizens of Rome, they shouldn't have been imprisoned. They shouldn't have been beaten. They would have had different rules in the magistrate. Um, The jailer probably has to get a message to the magistrates who probably has to call their boss because this could go all the way up to Caesar. And if it wasn't dealt with correctly, it could cost that whole line their lives because Roman citizens were not to be treated that way. It was against the law. The crazy part of this story is that when did Paul and Silas become Roman citizens? Does anyone know? Any guesses? They didn't become Roman citizens in prison. They were Roman citizens long before they ever got to the city. So this is the crazy part. They knew while they were getting the getting beaten up that they were Roman citizens. They didn't have to take one hit. As soon as, as soon as they're arrested, they could have said, Oh, by the way, one, one second, here's my Roman citizen card. Uh, I'm good. They would have had something, but they wouldn't have had what they had. So something about their understanding of who God was to them in that space in time allowed them to keep that card in their wallet. If they carried wallets. I want, I want you to really think about that. And I want you to think about that because that's another thing that jumped out and was incredibly arresting to me 
is that why, why would they have kept that card in their pocket when they could have avoided all of that? So let's hit the fast forward button to today. How does that work for us? We all have rights. We are in the most um, individual, right-minded, that's kind of a funny thing to say. Um, we are in a, a very rights-based society, let, let's put it that way. We deserve everything. Um, as Americans, we deserve things. As Christians, we deserve things. As parents, we deserve things. As a spouse, I deserve things. I deserve things from my employer. Or my, yeah, I'm from my employer. Um, my employees are deserve something. Citizens are deserve something. All of these are things that are owed to us. And I'm not anti-rights or freedoms at all, but it's incredibly fascinating to me that Paul and Silas waited until after they were beaten, after they were imprisoned, after they went through this crazy story with the, um, the jailer to say, oh, oh, and one more thing, by the way, um, we're Roman citizens. Think of how that message reverberated through the entire political and social fabric of that town. You want to talk about starting a groundswell or like um, a witness, a witness to who Jesus is and what he does. Think about what that must have done to the magistrate's boss. Where he's like, what? You beat, you beat them and you threw them in jail and you didn't ask if they were Roman citizens? What is wrong with you? And the magistrate's like, I, I don't know. What's wrong with them? What do they believe? How could they, like, we gave, our, we gave them our best shot. We had two new guys that were just looking to, to put, some, uh, put some time into somebody and they worked them over good. They never once said we're Roman citizens. And just the mind, like the crazy like mind game that that must have been to that whole city. Like what, what is it that they believe? And this is the part I want us to like push into our brains. What is it that Paul and Silas believed about themselves and their God that allowed them to keep that card in their pocket? So, now, now we're already in today. We, we, we fast forwarded to today, so we'll stay there for a few more minutes. Um, a lot of us right now are hurting. I'm, uh, especially, uh, like we've got the Zoom crew, we've got us, we've got, I mean, we, we bumped into some people over the weekend, and there is just a lot of hurt. I'm hurting, okay? This has been a really sucky year for a lot of reasons. And I would say at the same time, that could probably be due to my perspective. I have not been thrown in prison. I have not had the cops pull me out of my car and beat me half to death and throw me in, in prison for something that I really didn't do. But it's, it's been hard. I think that's just reality. I was thinking if like it was, it was Paul and I walking down through the city that day and, and Paul, I saw Paul throw the demon out of the woman and then the, the magistrates come and be like, uh, no, he, he lost his temper. <laughs> he did it. He has a temper issue. I'm going to be at Lydia's, do whatever you want with this guy. That's, that's kind of where, where my head tends to be on occasion. Um, but I want to point out a couple of things that also arrested me in this, is that Paul and Silas and Luke, and I said this earlier, they prayed a lot. And there's, um, they, they prayed down by the river. Um, they prayed in prison. It was part of their active focus 
wife. And there, there's a meme out there, and if I had had the uh, forethought to put my PowerPoint together, there's a meme out there, I don't know if you've seen it, it's of an iceberg and you see above the water and below the water, is anyone like nod heads if you've seen it? And above the water, there's like six different versions of this, but above the water it says um, success in what other people see. And then below the water, it says like hard work, failure, practice, mistakes, et cetera. And it says what others don't see. Now in this story, if I, if I wanted to write myself into the story, and if I'm really being honest, I want that above water success. I wanna look like, hey, everything's, everything's great. Uh, this last year of COVID, you know, it's above, above the water. Everything's awesome. God is blessing me. It's great. Um, but I, I'm quite honestly, I, I'm not there. Underneath the water, though, these people had a pretty steady diet of that, of, of spiritual practice, of spiritual discipline. And I want to be clear that this does not have anything to do with how God sees me or values me. That is, that is not what I'm saying at all. But I, I think, and I would posit, that the difference of me feeling terrible in our current scenario versus seeing the hand of God moving in and through me in the world is not God. It may be me. It may be my practice. It may be my devotion or lack of devotion. And I, again, I'm not suggesting that devotion and dedication equal joy and vitality and, and wonderfulness all the time. But I am suggesting, and again, this is to me as it is to, to us, if there's a lack of joy and vitality and we're overcome by the, the emotions that I think we're supposed to feel when things are bad, when we're in prison, when we're being beaten, I need to look at how I'm spending my time and focus. And do I trust that God is God and that he is overall and that he is in all? The second thing I want to show or chat about is if you're in the position of that jailer and your world is crumbling around you. Now, for him, this jailer, the world was literally coming to an end. He saw it. He clear as day. He had no way out. He's gone too far down a certain road. This was his dead end. This was his comeuppance time. And if that's you, I, I want you to know that the fact that you're hearing this message is directly connected to the story of that jailer. Because without the miraculous establishment of that church in Philippi and all of those other little churches around there, we would not be here. And we would not be here technologically either. Um, the message to you and to me is the same as it was back then. It's believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I will admit that our culture and especially our church culture has buried this simple phrase under layers upon layers of dogma and religion and garbage. Um, but if you strip all of that away and you wrestle with what does that mean? And that, this is where a lot of my thought time has been this past week is what does it actually mean to believe in the Lord Jesus and I will be saved? But the more you scrape down to what the core of that is, you'll find that he's more weighty, more substantive, more valuable, more grand, more just, and more accepting than you and I can imagine. And in some way that I can't get my head around, he's happy to be here with us.
So as we come to communion, I want to make uh, a couple other small things, uh, small points. Is Paul and Silas, we read about them in the Bible. They nail all the marks. They're superheroes. Um, the, Danny, you guys are the superheroes on your table anymore? They go upstairs. I saw them earlier. Like When we see these like superheroes of the faith, they never sin. They never fall. They never fail. But Paul, Silas, me, you, the Pope, the bishop, whomever we want to look at and put on a pedestal, we all fall and we all fail. And we're not measured or rewarded by what that iceberg looks like above the water or under the water. That's the scandal or the, the really bizarre thing of, of Christianity is we're welcomed, period. We can never work hard enough under the water to be as successful as we need to above the water. We're not offered the connection with God based on our abilities. We're offered the connection to, God, to the God of the universe like Lydia was. Like she, she was doing a pretty good job. She was a very devout person in her practice. And then when she realized, oh, God actually is a, is a person and wants to contend with me, awesome. We're offered freedom just like the possessed woman was. If you think of, like, she didn't set out to become a Christian. She didn't set out to be like, you know, I'm just going to read my Bible and I think I'm going to go to church a couple of times and maybe I'll be saved. Like, Paul smacked her in the face with Jesus and she was set free. And we're also, we're offered more grace like that jailer was. That jailer didn't deserve to be set free so easily. Like the amount of abuse that he would have had to heap on his prisoners to keep them under his, under his thumb, um, it was not just for them to, to let him go. But he was offered more grace. And he was offered that grace because one man, this man like believe in the Lord Jesus, he takes all of the cosmic con- consequences all of like, if you take sin and like, I don't know if you understand the butterfly effect, but that this, this action affects this action, this action affects this action for all of history. Those are, those are pretty large cosmic consequences. We live with some today, but he takes all of those and all of the failures and all of the brokenness of our world. And he takes it in himself like a black hole. He just absorbs it. And in tune, he provides us light and he provides us life. And it's bigger, and this is what Paul and Silas, I think, knew in the prison, is that even though they didn't see it happening, even though they didn't feel the Spirit of God talking to them like he may have been the week before, they knew that that was bigger and more weighty than not just their, their, their life, or not just the, their circumstances, I'm sorry, but their entire life. It was so much more, and they were part of it. Um, so I'm going to pray, and then I think Ken's going to come up and, and have communion. God, I thank you that you, you put these stories in your word, and you give us the ability to recognize who we are in them, and you give us the ability to recognize who you are in them. I thank you that you... You reveal yourself to us through your word. Um, I ask for our, our collective ability and our individual selves, our individual work that we would that we would see that regardless of the prison we're in or the thing that we're dealing with, that you're moving, you're active, you're working, you're present, you're for us, you're with us, 
in spite of all of the stuff that we're dealing with today. I thank you for that great, uh, great hope that we have. And I ask that you would help us share it accurately in the same way that Paul and Silas did. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Ken Jones. I'm one of the pastor elders here. And uh, thank you, Ethan, for sharing with us this morning. Um, that question, what must I do to be saved? It's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I, I often wonder how often I even think that I need to be saved and whether or not I live in a culture that feels the need to be saved. There's another question, uh, another place in the Bible where somebody asked Jesus, what do I need to do to do the works of God? What do we need to do? And interestingly, the answer that uh, Paul gives to the jailer and Jesus gives to the person is the same answer. This table actually pretend there's a table here with the elements on it uh they're being walked around in baskets right it reminds us of two things it reminds us that the questions need to be asked what do i need to do to be saved what do i need to do to perform the works of god in fact i do need to be saved i really do and i need life i need a life that i wasn't born with and that comes to me in another fashion after i'm able to have it come to me I, I've once I have this life, I've actually, and you and I have been created to do things on this planet that God has created for us to do. He creates works for us to to do. The second thing this table does is that it gives us an answer to both of those questions. My salvation, my life, the source of everything purposeful that I have to do on this planet during my life is in Christ Jesus. It's because He died and rose again. That's what this table reminds us of. Because his body was broken and his blood spilled out. To believe in the Lord Jesus is to be saved. To believe in the one the Father sent is to do the work of the one who sent him. Now, we don't conduct this little ritual every week is a sign of club membership. It's, it's not simply a religious exercise identifying us with a particular group or tribe of people. We preach Christ and him crucified. At this table, we remember and we celebrate our salvation. And even more than that, the one who brought it to us, the one who saved us from sin and death, the one who gave us a life that we could not have apart from him, and the one who ushered us into a lifetime of service to him, doing the things that he created for us to do. So I'd like us to take a minute. We're just going to stop here for a moment, and I'm going to invite everybody to just take a minute to quietly consider these things before the Lord and to talk quietly with him about matters of your heart your actions and words that you haven't been straight with him about. Confess and receive his forgiveness. If it's been a while since you've acknowledged your abject need for him, that's a good thing to confess. If it's been a while since you thanked him for loving you and told him that you love him, you might want to do that too. So if you'll take your little cups apart, peel the top off and take the little wafer out. And um, as you hold these, we're going to, I'm going to read something 
from the Gospel of Luke, and then we'll lead the wafer together, and then I'm going to read something else from Matthew's Gospel, and we'll drink the cup. Luke 22:19 says, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. Matthew 26, 27 says, And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your blood poured out for us, and we thank you for this table that we can come to you together every week to remember you. Amen.